Amen. Matthew chapter 15. I've been really encouraged by meditating on these verses. I just hope the encouragement will transfer to you today. And um, I'm really blessed by what God has preserved in His Word for us here. Matthew 15, I want to read verses 21 through 28. Another encounter of Jesus with someone that's a whole lot like you and me. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region, from that region, and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The old King James says dogs, little dogs is the idea. There were two words for dogs in the Greek, at least two, and one was for the street scavenger dogs and the other one was for the small, more household type dogs. And that's the little dog that Jesus uses here. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Well, Jesus has just had an intense encounter with Pharisees recorded earlier in this chapter who challenged him concerning his disciples, as they called it, transgressing the traditions of the elders. Of course, he exposed the real problem. The real problem wasn't his disciples. The real problem was his disciples' accusers. It was their unregenerate hearts that, as Jesus exposed, made light of God's Word while confessing allegiance to God. They gave lip service to being worshipers of God, but... Jesus exposed the reality of what was really going on with them. And so their hearts were exposed by what came out of their mouths. The heart is where true defilement originates, which we emphasized in when we spoke on those verses. And the heart needs to be transformed. 
By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, there needs to be a true circumcision, not the Jewish circumcision, the circumcision the Jews made so much of. There needed to be a heart transformation, a heart impact, a, something of unseen by man, something done inside of us is what's needed, right? And then, and then from there, there's a reservoir that is created, a reservoir which comes forth that which is a transformed life. And that's the work of grace. That's what happens when you're born again. But they didn't see the need for that. They trusted in their Jewish heritage. They trusted in their relation to the law. And they missed Jesus. They missed the Messiah. And so it was from that intense encounter with the Jewish leaders that Matthew now leads us to Jesus' positive encounters with Gentiles. Of all people to have a positive encounter with, Gentiles. And so from verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Matthew records these encounters. We'll look at verses 21 through 28 today, focusing on a particular idea. You see, with Jewish opposition increasing, Jesus exits Galilee with his disciples to this Gentile territory that's northwest of Galilee, a region, as he says, of Tyre and Sidon, northwest of Galilee, 30 miles from Gennesaret, which Gennesaret is where Jesus had the encounter with the Pharisees. And so he leaves there and he goes to a place. Mark tells us he went into a house and didn't want to be found. So so the idea seems to be that he went away with his disciples to get away from the intense situation that was growing with the Jews, at least the Jewish leaders. And and just a side note here, uh, and I was reading this this morning, actually, in in, uh, 2 Kings 18, that this is where Elijah went, the same region that Elijah went, and Elijah met a woman you remember. And so there's some parallels. Aaron was talking about parallels this morning. There's some parallels between what's going on here and what went on with Elijah. Uh, certainly uh, uh, typical, anyway, of, of Christ. But Mark tells us that, or excuse me, um, the word got out that, that Jesus was in this house. And so in verse 22, Matthew says, And behold... Uh, Behold, that's one of those neon flashing light words that Matthew uses quite a lot. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. He came unto his own. That is, the Jews. He came unto his own, and they didn't receive him. He goes to Gentile country, and not just any Gentile country. He went to a place that was that had really a, a history of enmity against the people of God, Canaan. This was a, Syri- uh, a, a, a Syrian region. In fact, Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman. And there, in this, we might call enemy territory of Israel, a woman of Canaan seeks him out. 
Now, do you think it was any accident? Do you think Jesus didn't know what was going to happen? Do you think he went to this house, Mark says, to kind of get away? Do you think Jesus was surprised by this encounter? You remember there was another encounter that he had. A Samaritan woman. And it said Jesus must needs go that way. He knew what was going to happen. In fact, there are some parallels between that encounter and this one as, as well. And so... We know nothing about this woman except what is recorded here. But this record is preserved as a testimony to, I think, two things. One we're going to emphasize this morning. One is it's a testimony to God's redemptive purpose beyond Israel. And we're going to focus more on that next week, Lord willing. But it's also a testimony to the nature and effect of genuine faith. And that's what we want to see today. Why would this woman think Jesus would respond to her need? Why would she have the sense that she could even go to him with any expectation that she was going to get the desire of her heart? She was a Gentile. And Jesus was sent to minister to the circumcision. Romans 15 and verse 8. And he'll say so in, we'll get to that here in verse 24. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house of Israel. She was not of the house of Israel. She was a woman. She was a woman. By the way, they knew back then. Maybe I shouldn't make too much of this, but they knew back then that a she was a woman. They didn't have problems with pronouns. They didn't have problems with determining men and women, right? That's a, that's a rather modern invention. But she was a woman. What's the big deal with that? Well, Jewish rabbis had little to no interaction with women. You remember that from the Samaritan woman. But she ultimately received from Jesus the desire of her believing heart. And it was in the context of that faith that Jesus says, he responds, verse 28, Jesus, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. And as the record reads, and we can say a lot of theological things, but let's take the scriptures as they come to us. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire on the basis of that faith. He's responding to her. This is not the first time that Matthew has noted Jesus' evaluation of great faith. There are only two times where Jesus speaks of someone having great faith. Here, and you may remember earlier in Matthew, Matthew is the one who brings this out. And it's interesting that that Matthew brings this out. Matthew is reading, writing really to a Jewish audience, but he is convincing a Jewish audience that Jesus had intentions beyond Israel, beyond the Jews. And so here in Matthew chapter 8 to the centurion who came to Jesus for someone else, just like this woman is coming for her daughter, the centurion came on behalf of his servant who was dying. When Jesus heard the response of the centurion, verse 10, he marveled. Isn't that something? Jesus marveled. And said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. 
Jesus' ministry on earth was primarily, as we have said, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet he is making known that he has sheep that are not of that fold. I say again, I'm going to bring more emphasis to that next week. He is truly, as the Samaritans announced in John 4 and verse 42, he is truly the Savior of the world. They said, we see that you are not only the Savior of the Jews, you're the Savior of the world. You see, ethnicity, gender, nor social status are the determining factors in God's saving purpose. It is it is faith. I want you to listen to Galatians three twenty six through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you. As we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Now, is there Jew and Greek? Is there is there slave and free? Is there male and female? Well, of course there is. Jesus isn't saying he's not discounting those distinctions. Or excuse me, Paul is not discounting those distinctions, and Jesus is not discounting those those distinctions in our text. He's just simply saying, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The need of this Gentile woman was great. Her daughter was severely possessed by a demonic power that no man could heal. Now, how this condition was manifested, I I thought about that, this severely demon-possessed. How much time should I spend on that? And I've concluded not much. Because the reality is we we don't know much about it. There were various ways in which demon possession was manifested in the New Testament, but there wasn't a monolithic way in which it happened. But somehow it was known that she was severely Under this demon oppression, possession, there was a power. Her condition was such, however it was manifested, and we don't know what that manifestation was, but it was enough for her to know that there was no human remedy. And the fact of the matter is she probably even sought remedies in her own culture. She may have even looked to the gods of the Syrophoenicians or or she may have looked to the medicine men or the spiritual doctors of her culture. But there was no remedy. And you see, this is the condition. This is the condition of every sin-bound soul under the influence of the God of this age who, whether he possesses or not, has a power over this age and a power and an influence over people. He, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, blinds those who are in unbelief. He's actively seeking to keep people in bondage. And so however it is manifested, whether it's a physical manifestation or some other uh, moral or we might say spiritual manifestation, the bondage is the same. And that's why I don't want to get so bound up with trying to be particular about this this morning. This encounter 
should give hope to every burdened soul facing what no power on earth can change. And there's the issue right there. Whether we're talking about salvation, whether we're talking about a deep personal need as a believer, or whether we're talking about intercession on behalf of another, there is a there is access to a power that is beyond anything mankind can deliver. Greater than anything in the created realm. Her prayer is a very personal prayer. It is a prayer of intercession, but do you notice how she prays? Lord, have mercy on my daughter. Is that what she says? She says, have mercy on me. Now, we can go a, a, a number of directions with that, but I'm not going to take the time to unpack every thought that I have. But one thing we do know, that this is true, the deepest form of intercessory prayer right here, so, so that you actually so feel the burden for that which you are praying, that you are praying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm bearing this burden so closely, so intimately. And it's, if you will have mercy on me, the, the answer will come for what I am praying. But we can also, and I want you to think this way, this prayer of have mercy on me is a personal cry, a personal plea. Whether it be, as I've said, in the context of salvation, or whether it be a personal burden that you may have, as a follower of Jesus Christ. But I am convinced that this encounter is preserved for us as a testimony to the nature of genuine faith. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. The sincere faith, the unhypocritical faith. He uses that expression also in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. In other words, if you're a believer, you have this kind of faith. In some way, it manifests itself. To some degree, it manifests itself like it manifests itself in this woman of Canaan. Now, you heard me say to some degree, because I believe there are degrees of the manifestation of this faith. But there are but there are hints, at least I think it's pretty bold that Jesus is actually using this woman to expose the kind of faith that he eventually concludes is great faith. And it's the kind of faith that you and I, you and me ought to desire to demonstrate. And so what does it look like? First of all, you see that she had a confident confession and expression. Her faith, her genuine faith, confidently confessed and confidently expressed herself. Faith, her faith was aimed toward a specific object. Her faith was aimed toward this Jesus. It wasn't just a faith in anything. It was a faith in this person that she seems to know. 
It's actually quite different from the Jews that Jesus encountered earlier. Back in chapter 12, you see, this was pretty typical as Jesus moved around the Jewish population. This is the kind of thing he encountered from the Jews. This is why he points out these Gentiles, something remarkable was going on here. Back in chapter 12 and verse 23, they saw some of the great things Jesus was doing. And their response was this. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? That's not a confession of faith. That's not genuine faith. Could this be the son of David? This woman is very different in her expression. There's no question in the heart of this woman of Canaan. God had revealed to her that Jesus was, in fact, the promised seed of David, the Messiah. Her faith was in him as the Lord, as The son of David. She knew who he was. Remember, a couple of chapters later, I know it's in the next chapter, we're going to see. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, who revealed this to you? Because he basically had the same confession. Who revealed this to you? My father. This is a a revealed reality to a faith. A great faith. She was confessing with her mouth, with complete confidence, That Jesus was Lord and able to save. You see that in verse 22. She says, oh, Lord. In verse 25, she says it again, Lord. In verse 27, she says it again, yes, Lord. Now, I know the word Lord could be used, was used in that day and age as a sort of an expression of politeness and respect. But, oh, brethren, this woman is using it. In a way that's different from that. She is confidently confessing Jesus as the master, as the sovereign. In fact, I believe she is at least hinting if she fully knew, I don't know. But she is expressing that he is Jehovah incarnate because only he truly can be called Lord. And so she saw that he was able to do for her what no other could. And so she cries Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. She does not plead for mercy on the basis of her own worthiness. That's not genuine faith. Genuine faith is not coming to the Lord and saying, well, I think I've cleaned myself up enough. I think I deserve something now. Now I'm going to ask you for something. No, that's not genuine faith. She doesn't say, I believe and therefore you owe me. No, she pleads for mercy, pity, because she believes that he is able to meet her greatest need. No one else had been able to meet it. In fact, if he doesn't, you get this sense. This is her heart. This is this faith. If you don't meet it, this need will go unmet. Brethren, that's faith. That's a confession of faith right there. And on our side of the cross... And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the content of our confession of genuine faith is different, but it is no less confident. You see, Jesus hadn't yet died. Jesus hadn't yet risen from the grave. We also are convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
We're convinced that he's the son of David. We're convinced that he's Lord. But our confession includes his death and resurrection and his present rule over all. You remember the word of faith in Romans chapter 10? The word of faith that Paul said he preached. The word of faith that we confidently confess with our mouth. What is it? We believe it in our heart. What is it? Romans 10, beginning in verse 9, that if we confess, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's what she's doing. And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That's what we do on the other side. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is now well known, even by those disciples who questioned it while Jesus was even interacting with this woman of Cana. They know it now, and Paul is declaring it. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. She's calling on the name of the Lord. You see, great faith is not a wondering if it is so or hoping that it is so kind of confession. It's not a rote catechism answer Learned as a child. Oh, yeah, I ascribe to that. Yeah, I believe that. That's not a confession confession of genuine faith. It is rather confessing what the Spirit of God has taught you from the record that God has given of His Son. You don't question the record that God has given. You are brought into the what you see here is what you're seeing with eyes of faith that the Holy Spirit has worked in you. It's real to you. That's what this woman is doing. She's evidencing genuine faith. Maybe even in such a way that the disciples are amazed. At least one of them didn't have this genuine faith at this point. But what else do we see? We see not only this confession, we see the persistence of genuine faith. And this really is what sets her faith apart as great. Jesus is not being unnecessarily difficult or just stringing this poor troubled soul along. You might think that upon first reading. What's he, what's he doing? What's going on here? I mean, this woman is in dire straits. Jesus, are you playing with her? Are you messing around with her? What are you doing? Every response from Jesus. Now, see, see, whether you agree with this or not, whether you like it or not, this seems to be the way that God deals with us. Every response from Jesus was an opportunity for her to express her faith. Do you think that Jesus knew she had faith? I mean, I I read some commentators who said, you know, Jesus is, you know, by the time he gets to the end, he realizes, oh, wow, this woman's got great faith. I better do it. No. No. 
No, it was an opportunity for her to express it. And guess what? She did. She did. Samuel Rutherford said this. It is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. It is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. Beloved, you will be helped if you get a hold of that. You see, believer, every obstacle or difficulty is an opportunity to express faith and grow. Remember, we are still growing in this faith, in the expression of it. Faith to faith, glory to glory. But also, this is what I see. It looks to me like each response of Jesus involved reasons why he might have said no to this Gentile supplicant. And, and, and we'll, hopefully you'll see that clearly. Every response really reflects a reason why he might have said, and perhaps why his disciples would have thought he would have said no. But he didn't. Do you realize that Jesus never said no in this in this situation? He never said no. And guess what? <laughs> she never heard no. This is that faith. She never heard no. Look at it. Verses 22 and 23. This woman cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Listen, this wasn't just a a token cry. Oh, there comes somebody who might be able to help me. I've heard he's helped others. You know, the word had leaked up into her region of the world that this fellow called Jesus was doing some great things. So, hey, how about me? Oh, well. No, she cried. When it says, she cried out to him, saying, that, that gives you the idea she was repeating this. Even though Jesus seemed to ignore her. It's striking, isn't it? Verse 23, Jesus' response, but he answered her not a word. That almost is shocking. It almost stops you in your tracks. He answered her not a word. She fervently prayed. She desperately appeals to him. And what is his response? Silence. It was as if he didn't hear her. Or worse yet, he heard, but he ignored her. Have you ever felt like that? Be honest. Have you ever felt like that? Believer, have you unloaded your burdened soul in faith? 
You would confess the same thing she confessed. And even more, this side of the cross. You don't question your salvation. That's not what this is about. But you've gone to Him in faith. And you've gone to Him for a personal need or interceding for someone dear to you only to receive what seemed like deafening silence. How about you seeking unbeliever? I'm talking to you, unbeliever. You haven't ruled out the existence of God. You still, you still think, I do need to ask. I do need to cry out. I, I do need to pray. Have you cried out to the Lord to have mercy on you? To deliver you from the bondage of sin? And He answered you not a word. This woman did not take silence as the final answer. And you know why? Because she had this faith that was being exposed. And so in faith, she kept crying out in verse 23. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. You know, cries out after us could be she's crying after them. But it could be that she's crying out from behind them. Why would she be crying to them? She's crying to the one who could help her. And it seems like maybe they're a bit annoyed, doesn't it? Send her away, for she cries out after us. Jesus' answer in verse 24 is not lacking compassion. He knows the heart of this woman. I continue to tell you that He is bringing to light the nature and significance of faith, and her faith in particular. He knows the end of this story. When He says, when He answered and said, you notice how it's, how it's expressed here, verse 24, but He answered and said, that sort of, Confused me a little bit. Was he answer? Who was he answering here? He was answering the disciples. The disciples are the ones who came and urged him, saying, "Send her away, for she cries out after us." And his answer, but he answered and said, "I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." If the if the thought was just send her away, don't have anything to do with her because she's not of Israel. It doesn't make much sense that Jesus would answer the way he does. But he answered and said, "I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." Indicates to me that the disciples were actually wanting him to. Answer her request and send her away. Does that make sense? Give her what she wants. Shut her up. Heal her daughter so she'll be on her way. She's wearying. We're tired of hearing her cry out like that. And so Jesus says, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Brethren, this woman was not of the physical house of Israel, was she? She was of the house of Canaan. And we read these words from our developed theological perspective. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that next week, Lord willing. 
But these disciples and this woman, they were not hearing this from a developed theological perspective. And when they heard Jesus, you know, this is not the first time Jesus said these things. In fact, he had told these very disciples when he sent them out on an evangelistic mission. Do you remember what he said to them? Over in Matthew chapter 10, he says to them, but go, he says, Go not, do not go, verse 5, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. So he's talking about ethnicity here, national boundaries. Don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The only place you should be going is the boundaries of Israel. He has gone out of the boundaries of Israel here. here, And here is one that is not of the house of Israel who has come to him crying. Confessing and crying. For help. So I say. We read these words from our developed theological perspective and we say, well, you know, the lost sheep of the house of Israel are all those, the elect ones that God has saved. And we say, and and I'll touch upon that more probably next week, that, that idea, that theological idea. But these words did not sound encouraging for this woman. It sounded like Jesus was shutting the door on her. Doesn't it? I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It sounds like a statement intended to exclude. I was not sent to people like you. I thought about this. It would be kind of like a seeker today. Hearing that Jesus came Only for the Israel of God or only for the elect. And wondering, is there any hope for me? Am I not included? Are those things being taught in Scripture to exclude me? But do you notice that faith will not be deterred by such a sound her response to it's, it's amazing. Her response to Jesus' words. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, "Lord, help me. I know I'm not an Israelite. I know my heritage is at odds with Israel, but I believe you, and I need you. Help me. Help me." A Gentile, help me. Genuine faith is not deterred by what seems to be a shut door. Genuine faith presses in to the one you believe is able. Faith does not conclude, does not concede the thoughts like, well, I'm not chosen. Or as I've been told, Well, you know, faith comes from God. If I don't have it, I don't have it. I'll just wait on Him. That's not the way faith talks, you see. Or I'm not worthy. I've heard that. A guy told me that last night. Hey, listen, you don't know how bad I am. I'm not worthy to come. Are you kidding me? 
Faith persists. You see, when you see Jesus, when your eyes are open to see who He is, then faith persists in worshipful posture. Notice, she came and worshipped Him, saying, Lord, help me. And then in verse 26, Jesus' response to her plea for help. Again, it seems like a put-off, doesn't it? He answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread. Who are the children here? The Jews. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Who are the little dogs? Gentiles. It's not good. It's not fitting. Now, now the parable itself That makes sense, doesn't it? It's not good to take the children's bread, that which is intended to feed the children. You wouldn't take that and throw it to the dogs, would you? It's not good. It's not fitting to give to, even if it's a little pet dog. It's not good to feed the dogs before you feed the children. In fact, Mark adds this, the Gospel of Mark adds this, let the children be fed first. That helps, doesn't it? So it's almost like Jesus isn't saying there's nothing for you. He's just saying, not you first. The Jews first. To the Jew first. And then to the Gentile. But you know what this woman's faith heard? She didn't hear what Jesus said as a put off. She heard hope in Jesus' words because Jesus said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The little dogs. And and she heard hope in that. She wasn't hearing Jesus say she was some scavenger dog that needed to be shot. I have a picture here in my mind. When I go to my family's house and, and sit around their table, they have two little poodles, Fern and Bailey. And you know what happens when the family comes to the table, especially when the children come to the table? You look down under that table, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find Fern and Bailey. And Fern and Bailey, they're anticipating. They're anticipating. They're not anticipating the plate to come down. They're anticipating crumbs. Crumbs, but I can tell you this, the crumbs from the bread of life is fulfilling, completely fulfilling. And so this woman surely pictured that in her mind when she says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Faith in her would not be deterred. Though she is not immediately welcome to the table because of her ethnicity, like a little dog, she she positions herself for the crumbs. And guess what? The crumbs come. The crumbs fall. And brethren, this is genuine faith. Anticipating an answer to the desire of your heart from Jesus to whom you're crying out. 
And let me just insert one other thought before I bring this to a conclusion. Do you notice the humility in this genuine faith? Did you see that? She says in verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even she doesn't object. She doesn't bristle at his reference that she's a Gentile dog. I mean, listen, even if it's a pet dog, it's still a dog. She doesn't bristle at the thought that she's unworthy of sitting at the master's table with the children, the sons of the kingdom, as they're called in another place. In essence, she's saying, it's true, Lord. It's true. Children should be fed first. But the master wouldn't forbid crumbs to a little dog like me, would he? Do you hear humility there? You see, genuine faith is not arrogant. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that God, the Lord God, Jehovah, draws near to the contrite. He draws near to the humble. Genuine faith is not arrogant and demanding, but moves us to take our place as beggars, expecting that Jesus will have mercy upon us even as we acknowledge our own unworthiness. Isn't that good? And so Jesus' response to the great faith of this woman of Canaan has stood for 2,000 years as an encouragement to every needy soul who comes to Jesus in a similar way. Let it be to you as you desire. That's how it closes. Let, he said, that, let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus may not respond to you immediately. But do not think that it's because he will not. Do not think that he's not hearing you. If you believe that He is the Lord, the Son of David, who came to destroy the works of the devil and to set captives, sinners free, then cry out for mercy. Cry out for help. And don't stop until He blesses you. Don't stop until He blesses you. Whether the need is for you, Brothers and sisters, I've been encouraged here. Whether the need is for you, or whether it's for that child. That child that is under a power that you can't deliver them from, and no man can deliver them from, but he can. Or whether it is for someone else for whom you're burdened. Take your burden in genuine faith to Jesus. Have faith in God. He hears. He cares. And based upon the record that we've been given to us here, I personally am confident to keep going to Him and crying to Him, crying out to Him. And I want you to be encouraged to do the same. Don't let anything stop you. 
Don't let the voices that would bring these arguments against you, as we saw Jesus respond, don't let any of those kinds of thoughts hinder you crying out to Jesus today. Father, I pray that You'd bless this Word. 